taking our cue from nature and trying to build symbiotic relationships. If we need something else, we want that something else to be making the other things stronger. Let's say I need $60,000 a year to make up a difference of $60,000 a year. I could go get a job in town and sit at a desk and, and bring in that $60,000 a year, but it is depleting my energy as farmer. I have to then farm nights and weekends, just subtracting from the whole effort. Whereas if if we map out a route to $60,000 a year in, an, in a farm stay, that brings more visitors to the farm. That brings in the $60,000 we need. That also brings customers to the farm. It helps our meat sales. It helps our sheepskin sales. It helps our marketing because they go home and tell friends. It just makes the whole thing stronger. It's time for conversations about our food and how it's grown on Farm to Table Talk with your host, Roger Wasson. Farm to Table Talk is looking at some really interesting things, as our listeners know, from all over the world. Here in the country, we've been all over the United States as well, and today we're up in Vermont, and I'm really happy to welcome Jesse McDougall. Jesse, welcome to Farm to Table Talk. It's a thrill to be here. Thank you, Roger. Well, Jesse, um, you know, you are involved in trying to help build abundance and diversity and resilience on a family farm. And you're also helping other people uh, do the same thing. And you're also kind of sharing that experience while well, you're sharing that experience today, too, on Farm to Table Talk. And I have to tell you, Jesse, it's a story that many are interested in. Many people find it admirable. And as we start plunging into your story, the, the one thing I have to say right up front is that there's people that are going to be listening to this that right off the bat, they're going to say, gee, I wish I was Jesse. You know, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about that. No, I assure you, I'm I'm here by accident and trying my best. That's all I can say. Well, you know what? Everybody has to try to put into play things to give them happy accidents. And when the accidents occur, uh, you grab a hold of it. So let's talk about your accident. You're in a happy accident. You're in the Northeast United States. So how do we come to find you having a, having a farm in Vermont? And then we'll go from there. But how'd you get there, Jesse? Well, through, uh, Accident, well, I should say I got here through tragedy and opportunity. You know, the I fell in love with a girl and she happened to be the fourth generation of a family farm here in Vermont. Her name is Caroline. We call her Callie. So if I refer to her as Callie in the interview, that's that's who I'm speaking of. Callie and I, um, in our early courtship, would come and visit the family farm. She grew up coming here every summer um, and every you know Christmas holiday she could um, with her mother, who was third generation of the farm. But it was run by her aunt, Edie, um, who was third generation and had run the farm from the time she was 16 years old um, to the time she was 56 years old. And... My wife, Callie, and I had always dreamed of living here on the farm, but we pictured it deep into our retirement, 
because Edie was young, vibrant, a, a superhero of a person, pillar of the community, and um, had everything in hand and made it all look very easy. Um, and she got sick in 2011 with glioblastoma. And we got that phone call that you never want to get um, from Callie's mother saying that Edie had brain cancer. And we, meaning my wife and I, dropped everything we were doing. And, and, and um, we were living two hours away from the farm at that point. But we, we came to the farm about half time as we could. Uh, while still running a web design and graphic design business we'd started um, to help Edie with, and the family, you know, there are a lot of people here, but to do our part to support the, everybody through the cancer and and with the farm, as Edie's, Edie, Edie um, couldn't do as much anymore. And and then she passed a year after her diagnosis in 2012 when she was 56. And the f we were all stunned. You know, we were all in that moment. Like, if anybody pulls through, it's going to be her, you know. And, and we're, despite the odds, we, we found ourselves surprised that she passed. Um, she so amazing. She was. Um, but we sat down at the long family table in the, in the farmhouse and had a discussion. What, what do we do with the farm? What do we do with, what, what does the next generation look like? Uh, and everything was on the table from selling the place to finding managers to leasing it out to everything. And, and my wife and I, who had not been, you know, farmers, raised our hands and said, you know, give us a shot. We'd like to give it a try. We don't know what we're doing really, but, yeah. but we got to be better than nobody. Right. And there's, we love the place that much. And we love the generational um, story. I mean, we were sitting in that, at that long table, looking at pictures of, of my wife's great grandparents who bought the farm in 1936 and, and the you know my wife was wearing the wool coat that her great grandfather had on in that photo. It's just an amazing inheritance and 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 story that we wanted to move forward, and we didn't know how, but we so we we just started, and, and that's how we we started farming. Well, you know, I'm sorry to hear that that story, and and in that transition, before this came up, and you had an opportunity to be doing this, both you and your wife were doing something else. Uh, and what, what was it that? Tell us again. I think you mentioned it briefly, but tell us mm -hmm. again what you were doing, and then this opportunity came up for you to come up and and start the farm. Yeah, my wife and I we are both what we regard as thoroughly unemployable people. We, we <laughs> need to, we have this need to work for ourselves. And so we um, are, are serial entrepreneurs in that way. Um, and we had started this 
um, graphic design, social media marketing, um, web design company in in Vermont. <clears throat> um, she's a gifted graphic designer, and I was a a web programming uh, geek. So I was in the code, and she was in the in the making everything look good. And we started this company. We ran it for. I don't know, maybe six years. And then when we got the call that Edie was sick, um, we started reevaluating our own lives and realized that this company was not what we wanted moving forward. And when, you know, and this was all kind of going on around Edie's illness. And, and then after she passed, it became clear to us that, that our hearts weren't in it anymore and, and we needed what we wanted, you know, was to take over the farm, um, give it our all anyway, and see where, how far we got with it. But yeah, you know, we came out of a, a tech world. Um, I, I personally didn't think of soil or, uh, you know, I never gave any thought to it, any of it, you know? Um, and one day found myself a grass farmer <laughs> and sat down and started, my research by Googling what is grass because that, that's where I needed to start. And I, I, and that led me down the trail of uh, at least the biological investigation of what I was trying to do here. And, and then of course the economics and the, and the chemistry and all this other stuff worked in and, and for good or ill, but, but, you know, the first decision we made here at the farm was to stop spraying anything and everything, all the chemicals, all the herbicides, pesticides. Um, it had been managed very conventionally with a lot of tillage, a lot of chemicals, a lot of corn. Um, but we made, McCallie and I made a decision to stop all that because we were terrified of any connection that might have existed between the cancer and the, and the chemicals. and and not knowing the um, potential um, results of our decision, um, we were very excited <laughs> and very naive, and we ran out into the fields the next spring after after stopping all of that and expected this lush green farm we'd always known to be lush and green and found that the fields were all the hay fields that had been most recently corn um that we planted back to grass in the fall they they weren't growing anything they were they were the snow was receding and we were finding bare dirt and and rock and washouts and and we thought we had you know messed up real good um thought we'd made a decision that that put the whole thing at risk and and had and, you know, we came to understand years later that what we'd done didn't, in fact, create that dead soil and ecosystem, but we had revealed it as it had been for years. And it had been covered up by the inputs, by the fertility that we input into these, into these conventional farming systems. You know, we reduce a, a thriving, complex ecological system uh, we use chemicals tillage to reduce it down to 
you know, an inert growing medium. And, and therefore, you know, the result of that is we have more reliability. If we control the inputs, we can control the outputs and not perfect reliability, but, you know, somewhat predictable system that we can control and understand. Of course, the unintended consequence of that is ecological destruction and, and pollution and climate change. And, you know, you can scale it up to as big as you want. I mean, the, the, the industrial management of biological systems is just wreaking havoc on the planet. And it took us years to figure all this out, but we just got started and we're happy to be wrong and knew we couldn't work for anybody else. So we, there is kind of a, well, that's it. That's an interesting approach. And you, a couple of things come to mind as you were saying this. First of all, you, you just mentioned again that you didn't think you could work for anybody else. So that's part of the spot of looking at, um, say, the fork in the road with your life. Then here's an opportunity that you can also work for yourselves. You apparently both find it um, appealing to work outdoors and be somewhat close to nature. And then you've got the you have the family connection uh, with the with the farm itself, and so you're you're making that plunge. And then also, it's it's almost um, kind of reminds me of Rachel Carson's story in, in a way too. Of course, she ended up passing from cancer and, and wrote years and years ago, "Silent Spring." And you can see it makes you think of that uh, tragic connection with your your aunt. Uh, passing and you're on the land. And so, and then the next thing that strikes me, Jesse, is I've heard these stories before of people coming out and looking at the land. And I'm thinking back to Louis Bromfield in the 30s and 40s that wrote Malabar Farms, which you may be familiar with. Uh, but, and, and when he would go in there and he was finding similar things, even back, you know, what, 80 years ago, 90 years ago, or something like that, and start doing what it could take to turn it around. So, so now I'm picturing you in, and your, your wife in Vermont, looking at this land and starting the process that you were talking about. Uh, did you find that you could you could go to somebody and say, what do I do next? Or was a fair share of this just kind of trial and error? Well, we, that's a good question. We did go and we asked everybody we could get our, uh, a phone call, a meeting, an email exchange with farmers, organic farmers, conventional farmers, farming organizations, groups, you know, anybody we could ask. Cause we were, we were panicking. We were losing crops. We lost crops lost our crops in 2013, lost our crops in 2014. We just um, didn't know what to do. And we're trying a lot of trial and error in those years. And, and when we asked folks, what do we do? How do we, what the question we were asking was, how do we manage 100 acres of hayfield, which is what we were haying at the time? Because we very much saw ourselves as a hay farm at that time. Um, how do we manage a hundred acres of hayfield without chemicals? And we got very few people who could even um, uh, well, I should say we got very few answers. Um, well, I, we got a lot of suggestions and no answers. I'll put it that way. And, and because 
a lot of the organic farming solutions for pasture that we found at that time involved a lot of tillage, a lot of reseeding. We didn't have the equipment for it, and I didn't have the interest. I, I kept coming back to the idea that that all that work to maintain grass was nuts because fields had existed in this area for hundreds of thousands, if not millions of years. And I said, if it, if we can't keep a field open now, what's missing? Because if I, if I leave my fields alone, they don't necessarily get stronger as hayfields. What happens is they, they turn into forest up here. The, the trees move in and take over. And the answer, of course, was the system that kept those fields open was, is, has been broken. And the, the ruminants and the roaming packs of animals that ate the grass and kept the fields open or have been moved out of the landscape or hunted away. And so um, and, and, and we asked organic farming organizations, we said, how do we manage hundreds of acres of pasture without chemicals? And, and they said, if you figure it out, let us know. That would be great. And this was, you know, 2012, 10 years ago, which isn't long ago. And, there, you know, there, we understand people have been doing this and what we're doing long before. We didn't invent anything. We just didn't find them in 2012. You know, there were people doing it. We just didn't, we just didn't find them. And, and so we did have a... a you know, an epiphany after watching Alan Savory's TED talk about repairing the grasslands in um, in Africa, where he his answer was more livestock, more livestock managed in the way that they would have evolved and acted. I should say they would have acted were the predators still in the in the in the ecosystem, because that predator prey grass grazer complex system is what created the abundance in the grasslands and the and the conditions under which grass needed to thrive and so we even though he was speaking about africa in a in a very brittle environment with not much humidity or rainfall certainly not regularly um and we are working in one of the most humid and waterlogged places on the planet we were seeing the same things that he was describing he was seeing in Africa from, from dead soil um, and a lack of, of animal activity on the ground. And, and so we tiptoed into it with chickens um, just to experiment on a small scale what it meant to put animals up back on the ground um, in the production acres where, where we had previously cleared them out for 40 plus years um, and kept them in one acre paddocks. These are the horses I'm talking about. And they destroyed the land in the paddock. So it was, you know, we were very skeptical that putting animals on the land could improve it in any way. Cause we'd seen for our, you know, not only did we, we had been indoctrinated with the current thinking of livestock are bad for the planet, but, but, um, we had seen it with our own eyes, you know, 
that yeah our horses were bad for the land and the cows that were here were bad for the land in places and so it was with much skepticism that we even attempted this and and after moving the chickens every 12 hours down the middle of what was a uh, you know looked like a gravel pit um at the end of the summer we saw this long green strip of grass growing um like gangbusters behind where the chickens had been and we we were thrilled that it worked you know and it dawned on us that oh animals aren't terrible for the ecosystem management bad management is bad for the ecosystem and if we're able to repair the grass grazer the you know the relationships that existed here before we mucked it all up the grass hasn't forgotten how to grow the grass hasn't evolved out of what it did when the dinosaurs were here you know and if we recreate those conditions the grass will do again what it you know did back then and we actually call it dinosaur grass on our farm we because it grows so tall and thick that we have to swim through it some some summers so um we just set about then at that point once we saw it work recreating those conditions and and we brought in sheep and we brought in turkeys and we've experimented with pigs and all that but but once that positive feedback loop got started where animals on the ground managed well and holistically um create more grass than than was there previously so that we could hold more animals on the ground and they improved the grasses which meant we could hold more animals and it just started spiraling up in the right direction ecologically but also obviously economically since we could raise more on the land than ever before wow you know it surprised me that you started off saying that there was corn involved because i when i think of vermont it's kind of um a lot of areas i've been in vermont have been uh hilly kind of rolling hills and so you see a lot of pasture and uh, where i grew up in central illinois the land is just flat as a table and somehow people are expanding their farms and you know buying six hundred thousand dollar tractors and nine hundred thousand dollar combines and going into great debt and so forth uh and hooking them up to satellites um some of that equipment that you see in the center part of the country it's hard to think they have enough space to turn around in hmm. in, in some of the odd shaped fields i see yeah. in, in vermont and in the northeast you'd be i'm surprised but but people would be surprised the posted postage stamps <laughs> that people cram corn into up here um literally not enough room to turn the tractor around um you know, both sides of the telephone pole kind of stuff. And <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, you know, I, 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 um, have to be somewhat political about this because I support all farmers and, and, and I know how hard it is, no matter how you do it to make a living. I, so when I say this, I don't not disrespecting farmers or their decisions and I don't know how to farm their farms any you know better than they do their context is unique but i don't see why there's any corn in vermont um it's not a landscape that is particularly good for corn production um the the it's not good for the landscape it requires too much 
inputs in my opinion but but the reason it's here is we are economically competing with the midwest and amazing efficiencies out in the midwest where you can grow tens of thousands of acres of corn with three employees in a gps controlled tractor right mm-hmm. we'll never have that here and yet we're competing in the same milk market that they are and and have to chase efficiencies wherever we can find them to compete in that milk market i mean the dairy the dairy industry is huge in vermont because it was born out of his small family dairy model um you know i'm i'm running a former old dairy it was a family farm was a dairy from 36 to 64 and um Uh, and I and and as a result of us trying to cram maximum efficiencies into inefficient landscape, which is rolling and undulating and broken up by rivers and hills, and you know if you have ten thousand acres in Vermont, it's spread across nine counties essentially, you know, and you can't get to them all in a day, let alone you know in a morning. So we'll never be able to compete with the midwest and that efficiencies and yet we try and we're losing in the northeast now a thousand farms a year um because we've been kind of forced into that model and it's my hope going forward that we can return animals to the ecosystem that are beneficial and appropriate for the ecosystem in which we live so that you know the heavy hooves of horses and cows in the wet rolling hills tend to create mud holes and push the topsoil down into the river. And yet my sheep, you know, a flock of my sheep can glide over the wet spots with barely making a, a dent and not destroying the grasses under underfoot. And in fact, um, you know, that as Joel Salton calls it, the ecological massage that happens as they move over the landscape actually improves the growing conditions for the grass so i think we have to start very carefully in vermont and elsewhere thinking about what agricultural practices fit the ecological systems we need here and have evolved here over millions of years to to thrive if we get those systems right if we can recreate the systems that have evolved to thrive here we can have agricultural success. And if we, if we just, uh, if we just follow the economics and, and build our agricultural models uh, based around the economics of it, we're, we're, we're trying to fit a round peg into a, it will always be fighting nature. It will always be tough. It will always be fighting back. You know, we'll just, it'll be a, it'll be a negative feedback loop where it gets harder every year and we start losing farms. Jesse, how long has it been since there's, since you've added anything, put sprays or any kind of chemicals in onto the farm? No, we stopped on in 2012 with that decision. And, the only thing we've added, misguided though it was, was every manure pile we could collect in the county. And we did that in the first years because we 
were thinking in 2013 and 2014 very industrially. We had to, our question, we were thinking, our question at that time was, what do we put in so that we can get what we need out? Right. So we had dead fields. They were washing away. There were rocks and, and moss and, and slime and no water um, cycling at all. It all just pooled and, and ran off. And we looked at that thinking, what do we have to put in to get what we need out? And so we drove, we said, well, we need organic matter. We need biomass. We need, so we drove around and collected every manure pile we could get our hands on um, and spent months doing it and collecting it and spreading it. And it did almost nothing for the fields. Um, and we were very surprised and very disappointed and spent, you know, a fortune in, in, in gas and diesel fuel to get it all on the land. And in those piles, you know, I know that there was antibiotics and atrazine and Roundup and, and stuff because it was coming from conventional farms. But, you know, that was the last time we spread anything on the land. And, and, but we learned, you know, why that didn't work uh, um, later. We were baffled at the time, but we, now we understand that, you know, collecting all that organic material and then putting it in your spreader and flinging it up in the air, uh, pulverizing it and flinging it up in the air to spread it out over the fields on top as a top dressing, um, especially if you're dropping it onto soil with no biological activity, which we were doing, there's no chance the carbon's going to go in the ground and, and, um, do what you're hoping it will do in feeding life and, and creating a system that the roots can penetrate. And, you know, the, the carbon in that organic material just oxidizes. It, it is beaten by the elements and the carbon molecule breaks off, bonds with the oxygen and floats away as CO2. So all of that carbon rich material that we were throwing out into the, <laughs> out into the fields was really just, um, unintentionally, you know, greenhouse gas <laughs> production. Um, and it wasn't until we, you know, of course, the, the effective alternative to that is bringing the animals in, right? So when the animals drop their manure to the ground, um, first of all, it is not flung up in the air first. It is dropped with a lot of moisture in it, and then it is trampled into the ground by a roaming herd or, or pack a flock of animals. And it's that trampling that is key because it literally incorporates it down into the soil. And if there's any, if there's not any microbiological activity in the soil, the fact that it's being passed through a sheep or a cow with, with a hopefully rich and, and diverse uh, microbiome in its gut is inoculating the soil with that life. And, and by trampling it down and mashing it down, they're protecting all but the surface of it from the elements that will break that carbon molecule off and, and cause it to oxidize away. So it was the, it was the addition of manure directly from the animal or I should say the recycling of the carbon from the grass into the manure and then the trampling, pushing it down into the soil that really got that positive feedback loop 
started. It inoculated our dead soil to, with, with the biology and then the biology and then created the conditions for the biology to flourish and create healthier grasses, which in turn created healthier sheep and much more carrying capacity. And then it just went around and around. And that's, you know, that's why we're now modeling our businesses off of nature. You know, we're trying to create symbiotic enterprises on the farm that reinforce one another and make every everything stronger. See, all these years, I've been feeling so proud of the fact that I used to spend all my winters cleaning barns and putting pitchforks of manure into the manure spreaders and going out and spreading them on top of the uh, of the snow because the cattle were mostly in in barns through the through the winter. And uh, now, Jesse, you're making me feel I shouldn't necessarily be so proud <laughs> well, of that. Well, no, I, I don't want to say it's not ever without merit. The, you know, context matters. And in our context at that time, we were spreading it on biologically dead soil, mm. right? And, and too much of it. So it's like, it, it's like ordering a thousand pizzas and putting it down on a, a birthday party with three nine-year-olds in it. They just can't get through. <laughs> they can't eat and process that amount of pizza. It's just going to rot and, and, and and leach and go somewhere else, all that food. You know, if you're jumping, if you're using your manure spreader, yes, you're going to lose some carbon when it's flung up in the air and all that. But once it hits the ground, if it's landing on active, biologically active and hungry soil, biological communities, it's going to, it will be incorporated. Absolutely. But we were not. And, and so we lost, I would guess, all of it um, to the, to the atmosphere. Hey, I'm getting a picture of this and, and I, it's a very appealing picture of what you're doing there. The three stages that I want to be sure we just touch at least briefly on one is that it always comes up when we talk about pasture raising products is that there, you have to find a way to market the product. So I do want to just to, at least to just touch on uh, what happens to these, to your livestock mm. so that you could market them. And the other thing is that, um, I, I do want to talk on the Savory Institute because, and and I want you to be able to explain establishing a hub and what's going on with the Savory Institute and your role in that. And then I think that, and then the other is that you, you're, you're broadening and getting into agritourism now too. And I, I'd like to be able to go. So there's three subjects that, but, um, and we could probably spend three more podcasts on each one of them. But but um, people have heard the story a little bit before of how creative you have to be when you are pasture-raising livestock. And and there are challenges we're, we typically hear about. And uh, how are you overcoming that? And how are you getting your products to market? Well, it's interesting. Thank you. Yeah, there's a lot. I just want to say we have so much going. We have those three things going on that you mentioned the livestock, the savory hub, and the agritourism. Those are the three enterprises that really reinforce one another and the three peg legs of the stool that hold us up. And it creates resilience in the system um, to not have all our eggs in one basket, so to speak. Um, it, it, um, let me think. It's funny. what When we thought about what to do with the farm in those early days. It was a horse farm. It was a horse boarding and hay farm. But Callie and I wanted to put our own spin on it 
um, she loved horses, but but it was really Edie's uh, passion and drive that created the horse business and made it successful. So we were thinking about just back of the napkin kind of stuff. What could the next version of this land be? And we thought about an apiary and we thought about orchards and we thought about hops and we thought about, you know, um, cannabis because everybody was pushing cannabis at that time. And, and we thought about vegetables. Um, and then we came around through this Alan Savory thing and we started talking about livestock and, and, before we had experimented with anything and saw it work, then we knew we were sold. But before we got to that point, we were thinking about livestock and we thought, Hey, you know, nobody around us is doing livestock on, in a big way. There are a few farms that do a cow or two cows every few years. Um, and you can find a lamb or two and maybe a pig from a neighbor, that kind of stuff. Maybe we stumbled into a market opportunity, you know? And so we just, took that as gold and, and jumped in with both feet once we saw it work on the land. And very quickly, we realized why nobody was doing livestock in the area. Um, the answer is, it is um, hard work. That didn't surprise us. But the surprise was that there was no processing, no infrastructure to support that sort of operation in the area. And there was so much red tape involved in getting a chicken breast onto your neighbor's plate that, that it was daunting. You know, you can grow a tomato and pass it to your neighbor and sell it legally. Um, if you raise a chicken and, you know, process it and want to hand your neighbor a chicken breast, you're suddenly illegal. Um, it has to go through a, a USDA processing and USDA inspected slaughterhouse. And, and the only ones around us were in, you know, four hours North or four hours South. And so that was a problem. And, and, and luckily early on in our journey, uh, we had uh, a farm not too far away from us, 40 minutes away had, had discovered the same problem. They were a seventh generation family farm and had been in everything over the years from, from livestock to a petting zoo to paintball. You know, they just did everything they could to keep the lights on. And, and they decided that they were tired of driving um, excruciating lengths to have their livestock processed. Because we, you know, for example, I had to drive my, my poultry to Rhode Island for processing, uh, which meant I had to drive down, have it processed, drive back, drive down, pick it up and drive back just to sell my neighbor who's, you know, within walking distance of my farm, a uh, chicken breast. So I could do it legally or I could do it profitably. And there was, that was my choice. And, but then this farm opens up 40 minutes. Uh, this farm decides that they want to get into it. They don't have processing. So they decide to build their own. And, and build this USDA meat and poultry plant not too far from us. And, and it was great. And they did a great job and we used them for years. And then because margins are so slim throughout this whole system, uh, they ended up going out of business. And 
in the slaughterhouse and and they had to they put a for sale sign on the front of the farm after seventh gener seven generations and it, it was um very sad to see and and when they went out of business i was faced again with driving four, four hours four times to have my poultry processed and and um, because we weren't a big lamb producer at that point, waiting a year, year and a half to get a slot spotter and a slaughterhouse locally. Um, if they would even talk to me, you know, most of the houses around here for reasons I understand say, if you can't bring me 10 sheep a week, I don't want to talk to you, you know? So they, they deal with 10 customers, uh, big customers and keep their house full where you know and then leaving a hundred smaller customers out um the capacity is just not where it needs to be so but the land could support a lot more right so we were we were trying to regenerate as much of the land as we could which meant we could run hundreds more sheep on the land but we can't do it as a hobby you know it takes time effort work um, and cost to shepherd and raise healthy animals. And, and yeah, we could raise them on the land and the lands could put support it now, but where do we sell, where do we have them processed? And after we have them, if we find processing, how do we have them, um, sold? And if we sell them, how do we get them there? So we learned that, you know, in the conventional degenerating model, you, it's like kind of a race to the floor and you stop farming when you hit that floor and your farm is farmed out and, and you have to go out of business or find something else, a, a way to fix it. But, and we had found a way to fix it, but then we very quickly hit low ceilings, right? We hit processing <laughs> where there's a small uh, capacity for processing and a small capacity for distribution and a small capacity for marketing and and I, it was also very disappointing because i just wanted to raise sheep i loved it i fell fell for it i wanted to raise my flock sell a good product and go back to raising my flock but could not um be done profitably easily so i was you know um speaking to a group one day about regenerative agriculture and what we had done on our farm in terms of bringing the the topsoil back and the birds back and the and the crickets back and all that and um and what this how this could help vermont and vermont's water pollution problems and all this kind of stuff and and um and i was just complaining you know as i and want to do um, about what we needed in the area. I was like, we need processing, we need distribution, we need sales, we need this stuff here. If we're going to regenerate this ecosystem, we need this all here because we need more hooves on the ground. We need it all managed well. Um, we're losing a thousand farms a year. There's so much empty land, there's so much opportunity, but we don't have the infrastructure to support it. That kind of effort. And, and a guy who um, I learned later, um, knew how to get big things done and, and in a time when big things needed to get done, came up to me and said, you know, we can do this. There's money to do this if we 
put our heads together, we could we can figure this out. And I said, totally skeptically, I said, yeah, great, go do that. I'm farming. I'm too busy for any of this. And um, he, to his credit, took that well and um, said, all right, I will. And circled back to me maybe nine months later and said, listen, um, I, I talked to everybody I could get a meeting with in Vermont in the food system, in farming um, over the last nine months. And they all agree this needs to happen. We're going to do it. Do you want to partner with us? And at that point, I jumped in. Um, and we started a company called Regenerative Food Network Incorporated. And, and it's a partnership between my farm, Studio Hill, uh, a family office named Embata Capital, and a, a grassroots uh, uh, solar systems designer and installer to build a the infrastructure out that would allow small family farms to um, be supported, farm profitably, and deliver ecosystem regenerating carbon sequestering food to larger markets in the cities on um, electric vehicles powered by renewable energy that comes from the farms that are producing the food. That, that was the idea. We wanted to build the right system that would allow humans to um, raise food, fuel and fiber um, and deliver it to the cities um, without externalizing all the costs onto the environment or onto healthcare or onto. Um, so we set out to do that a few years ago and, and that's, you know, the office I'm sitting in now, we're still going strong and, and we've brought that meat plant that I mentioned earlier in the interview back online. Um, the family took the for sale sign down off the front of their farm and is really excited about bringing in more livestock. And that's, um, you know, a story that brings a tear to my eye, literally. And um, we have a tannery. We bought a tannery, um, an organic, I shouldn't say organic, an all-natural tannery. It's organic in the UK, certified organic in the UK. That, the same process is that we use. It's a veg, veggie tanning tannery uh, for sheep skins and goat skins and stuff like that. So that, which completely changes the economics of raising a sheep, because if you get, let's say 300 retail for the meat, you can also now get 400 retail for the skin. Um, and that, that just sends your dollars per acre up through the roof and changes the margins significantly. Um, but, we're, but the idea is we want to build a system where the entire, all the value that farmers are creating is compensated. And, you know, I, I watched so many of these bags of sheepskins go out of the back of the different slaughterhouses and get in the render truck. And I thought, can't we do something with that? I think we could do something with that. So, so we're, we're building um, a network that with the goal of which is to, to hand the farmers the heaviest check possible for the work that they do. You know, there's so much of this is, is new. I've heard, you know, around the country now, fortunately, because there's some new USDA programs and uh, there's, there's money available to help get regional plants going. Something that's really new that you're mentioning, too, is looking at the tannery side, too, because that's been missed. And some of the people that are trying to get started local plants and, and expand them around the country 
you know, are still feeling like they sometimes are just having to to go to um, at landfills, which is terrible, oh, terrible. Uh, you know, with uh, like lambskins and, and hides and, and other things, because they haven't figured out how to deal with that side of it. And I'm I'm encouraged to hear that you're getting your arms around that because the, the, what a waste otherwise, let alone I, the damage that that does, uh, you know, really uh, the, the climate effects of going to landfill with all that product is it's terrible. It's terrible. I agree. There's so much waste in this system. And like I said, we're, we're chasing, we have to chase efficiencies in this model, in this region, because our landscape is not efficient, right? So we have to recoup every, ounce of effort and value that we can out of the system. And, and not only the sheepskins, pulling those out is a, out of the waste stream is a huge boon to shepherds and, and goat farmers and um, because they sell like hotcakes um, and, and we have trouble keeping them on the shelves and the margins are great. And it's a home, you know, it's a home product. It's like a gift product. It's not an everyday thing like in food. But also we're teaming with pet food companies to make use of the, you know, the organs that don't sell well or the, you know, we're creating a bone broth uh, line of, um, you know, a, a line of bone broth to get the nutrition out of the bones. And we're creating a, we're teaming with a compost company to use even the eviscerate to create value out of that. And so we want for, you know, reasons of reducing our waste to almost zero, if not zero and paying the farmers top dollar for everything that they're producing and re respect for the animal and respect for the, the land um, that comes from seeing value in everything. None of it is waste. If, if we're dealing in, and the idea that there's any waste in a biological system is nuts. It all goes somewhere. And we are trying to make sure it goes to the right place for the right, and, and, the, and the right people are compensated for their work. And I shouldn't say just people, the right contributors to the system, whether that's a worm or a, or a you know, worker, the, the value needs to go back to the right places if we're going to regenerate. The, the ecosystems and economies that we are working Jesse, in. Jesse, we could have uh, several more podcasts just about this part of your story, but I do want to be sure we're moving forward because when I, th I think of all that you're talking about so far, what comes to mind, you've got, you've got labor issues, you've got planning issues, you've got communications issues, you've got regulatory issues and all these things. I know that you're working your way through them and you found a way to, to deal with them, but I want to be sure we, we also get into the educational side uh, because hmm. I mentioned the two of the phases you know, that are left. One is your role with the Savory Institute, because just as you're telling a story today about what you've done with grass and so forth and trying to help farmers become um, kind of find solutions to their to their problems. Um, so. Let's let's shift over and talk a little bit about you're getting into this. Uh, savory hub role and and what does that really mean what do you do well we are honored to be a savory hub it is one of the what i regard as the, the one of the greatest accomplishments in my life that having been honored in that way none of this 
none of what we're doing here could have been possible had we not discovered holistic management and holistic plant grazing and and which are really just the means um, we the tools we use to make these decisions about how to manage such complexity in the ecosystem, in the economy, in these social structures. Um, in the family, you know, it's what we have when you're farming is a, a unbelievably interconnected system, uh, you know, a web of eight different complex systems. <laughs> and you got to get them all right. Because if the economics don't work, you can't be farming. If the ecology doesn't work, you can't be farming. If the family doesn't want you to do it, you can't be farming. You know, it's all, it's all very complex. And holistic management is the way we manage all that and, and see the opportunities and the risks. So to then have been um, discovered and, and invited to be invited to, to apply, I should say, and, um, and serve as an example for our region of the regenerating power of holistic management is truly awesome. Um, feels it's amazing. And so our role as a savory hub for Vermont, uh, um, a savory hub, there can be more and I hope there are more, um, but we're, we, you know, we're one as a influencer hub is just merely to serve, to, to invite people in, give tours, show people what an abundant regenerating ecosystem looks like, and then help them understand that, that, in order, you know, humans do not need to eat the planet <laughs> in order to survive. That's a zero-sum game. We do not need to. Um, we're not. We're not. Um, oh, what is the term I'm looking for? Oh, I don't know. But an abundant future is possible. You know, everywhere my sheep go, like I was saying earlier, they make the grass stronger and the environment more able to feed them that bodes well for the species of sheep in that through their natural behavior they can they make the environment more able to feed them humans have not learned that trick yet or i shouldn't say we're not doing it on a wide scale at the moment i'm sure i mean there have been humans who've gotten it wrong throughout history and humans who've gotten it right throughout history and and in in Modern agriculture, we're getting it very wrong. Everywhere we go, we're making the land less able to sustain us, um, except for in these spots of you know regenerative agriculture that are proving we can feed ourselves and regenerate our natural resources at the same time. And you can see very, very clearly when you step onto one of these farms that a future is possible. You know, we don't need to resign ourselves to burning up we don't need to resign ourselves to the fire you know the the end of the world there is a there is a different path forward and and it's these savory hubs and wider regenerative ag um examples and you know that are showing that are showing people a good way forward not the only way forward, but a really good way forward. We're going to have to have you uh, remind people how they can get to uh, more information on savory hubs because they exist 
all over the place. There's quite a few, uh, uh, but for general information, and, and then also, uh, this might be a good time for you to mention too, just for your own hub, um, how do people find you online to get more information? Yeah, thank you. I should mention we're one hub in our region, but the hubs are all over the planet. They have, I think when I came in, there were we were one of 50, and I think there may be one of 80 now, uh, such hubs where you can go and visit holistic managers and, and see the great work they're doing, regenerating ecosystems while feeding communities. Um, if you go to savory.global, that's their website, savory.global, you can learn more about the Savory Institute and their global hub network. Uh, many of them have farm stays and Airbnbs. You can go and stay and and just walk around and, and experience, a, you know, the clouds of butterflies and the, you know, mist of crickets and all of the, all of the abundance that comes with, with healthy ecosystems um, that we often don't see anymore as modern humans. Um, and our farm is at studiohill.farm online if you want to check us out. Um, all our farm stays are on there and and um, tours and photos, before and after photos are there and you can see what we do. Well, you know what? You just opened the door to the other area that I want to be sure that we got into. Uh, talking about agritourism and you mentioned even the hubs with the other farms that have farm stays available for people to come and see, I, I like hearing these kind of stories because consumers want to see and hear stories. I mean, we try, I think, with a lot of food companies are trying to put stories on their labels now, on their packaging. And and uh, you're taking it to the nth degree is really, you know, come on out and literally see and uh, tell me about that. Um, and even, you know, stay. How does that happen? Tell me what that yeah. looks like. Well, right now we're on all of the short-term rental platforms, Airbnb, VRBO, and 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 uh, we got started in that somewhat by accident. Again, we just had this cottage on the farm that that you know we were earning no money <laughs> at all anywhere, um, and put it on the on as a kind of a lark to see if it would book out on Airbnb, and it lo and behold booked out the next year, and then the year after that, and and um, we learned through that experience that people are hungry to see um, I guess they're hungry to find hope you know and and I call it sometimes they call it hope tourism people that come to the farm want to be in a healthy thriving ecosystem whether they know about regenerative ag or holistic management or not they just want to get away and they want to walk in the fields and, and see a healthy ecosystem. And, and then they learn about what we do and how we do it and why we do it. And they go home to, you know, Brooklyn and Boston and New York and sometimes Europe and say, you got to go see this place. This, this, this really is, um, you know, made me feel better about the state of things and where we're headed. And, and so we get a lot of referral traffic, a lot of repeat traffic of people coming through um, and just walking around and talking to us and, 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 you know, eating from the land that they're sleeping on. And it's a really 
authentic experience that that moves a lot of people and reminds us what it means to be human um, in a way that that often we don't feel anymore because we're staring into our phones and answering all these little red dots that call for our attention. Um, and and but economically that revenue stream of the agritourism is what has allowed us to transition the farm to regenerative agriculture. In the beginning, it was just, you know, people coming and staying on a nice farm. And, and it's come to be more of a destination. Come, come look at Studio Hill and, and what they're doing there. Um, but it was, you know, every farm, it was put to me like, like this by a, a local old timer um, who I love and respect. He said, you know, every farm has something else. He's like, I don't care if it's a job in town or a consulting deal or, you know, some, every farm has something else because you cannot make money farming. That's how he put it. And, um, and our something else is Airbnb and, and short-term rentals. It, it is, and as opposed to something else that takes us off the farm and puts us in an office chair downtown, this, this one brought in revenue and allowed us to stay on the land so that we could tend to it and we could be careful stewards. Yes, we have to rush off and scrub a toilet and fix a, fix a shower and all that kind of things, but then we could return to the land. It wasn't like we... Um, we're doing that for some company far away. It was, it, and I encourage any farms out there, no matter how you're farming, with a view, with a with an extra building, with a you know, place for a year. Look at this, and 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 seriously consider it. It's a lot of work, and a lot of it turns your farm into a, a bit of a tourist destination. There's a lot of customer service. Um, I happen to enjoy it, so you know, it works for our context, but. Um, I have to ask you, did, did you have to build some cabins or something, or did you uh, have well, we had, in a house or what? We started, well, when we, when Callie and I were a few years into managing the farm, there was a little schoolhouse cottage on the farm that had been recently vacated. Um, and we had been renting that out long-term rental and, um, and we went into it and we, you know, kicked the tires and, and did some, did quite a bit of, of um, remodeling in it. We gutted quite a lot of it and rebuilt stuff and, and, um, and put it on Airbnb. So it was the building we owned, but we had to rehab it. And, and that one booked out first. And then what's happened is um, as that revenue stream gets stronger and stronger um, and there's more and more interest in people coming and staying here, we've been actually able to buy land that abuts us with houses and cabins on it, um, not to mention farmland. So we've, we've actually in, our, in the last few years gone from 250 acres to 350 acres just through acquiring neighbors who would come to us and say, listen, that's it. Going to Florida, it's my time. Do you want to buy my land? Or, or neighbors saying, "I love what you're doing. I have this property next that abuts you. Do you want to make an offer?" And because the um, 
agritourism, the margins on it are good enough. We can buy a piece of land if there's possibility of, of grazing it and hosting people on it. And, and so we're expanding our regenerative management to, you know, a hundred more acres this year because the agritourism part of the business is allowing us to acquire more land. That's really, really fascinating. You know, I'm reading a book right now called Wonderlust. And oh, sure. Uh, are you familiar with it? it? I am. You know, what I like about it is I listen to it on audio when I go out and hike along the river and I can just walk for, you know, take a really, really long walk and hear about people walking. And the thing that struck me was that, especially in the UK, uh, how many ramblers there are that people are just dying to get out of London and go traipse across farmland. And in fact, it becomes somewhat of an issue because sometimes people's farms are being walked through that yeah. they'd really rather that they wouldn't or they wish they'd check in. So it becomes a little bit of a nuisance when it's not too well organized. But it, it, uh, and in other places around the, around the whole globe, you see that too, that people are just dying to get out and get into country and want to not only be around nature, but uh, see the sheep in the pasture and the cows up in the hills and just walk. And, yeah. um, and seems like you're, meeting, of, you're meeting that need. We're, we're, we are, we are. And I, I should take a minute to give some, to call out steward, um, which is a company we worked with to acquire this latest property. It's a steward is a company that a private lending company that has built this incredible platform that allows individuals and, and organizations to lend money to, Regenerative farms. They work exclusively with regenerative farms and regenerating landscapes. And and what's and they worked with us um, to acquire these this, this um, seventy five more acres for the for the farm and two three Airbnbs on it, uh, or I should say farm stays on it. And um, what's interesting to me about that is if we were a small conventional farm. And not regenerating anything, and not having proven regeneration, regenerative um, benefits to the way we're managing, we would have had no access to capital to buy this land when the opportunity presented itself. It was only because we had been able to prove that we were regenerating the ecosystem that that we were able to get this funding and this help, um, which is a huge paradigm shift i think it's it's wonderful i mean small farms have struggled to find loans and funding for 100 years now i would imagine and 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 if farmers out there are looking for a reason to switch or take a look at a different way to do things the fact that there's investment and funding and interest in this now um is a compelling reason to at least watch a ted talk or read a book about it. Um, most farms that I've talked to that have switched over to holistic management, regenerative ag say, you know, after the third year, I would never go back. Things have gotten hmm. so much easier, so much less expensive um, in the landscape, but also in the interest and in the, 
investment and in the funding. It's it's um, people and dollars now are interested, yes, in making economic return, but also very interested in making a social and ecological and and return in those other ways. Um, they want to see their money out there. Uh, combating the the problems that we're facing today. And this is a great way for farmers who are doing that to to, um, recoup the value of the the ecological benefits they're creating and that sort of thing. So, You know, you, you mentioned the person that said that every farm ends up having to do something else. And I hear that sometimes the lamenting that people think that Gosh, it's too bad. I've got to go get a job in town or I got to do this. Yeah. But really, if you look back, there always have been enterprises combined uh, in in farming because the people I know that are really, really good at livestock wish they didn't have to put a crop in at all. To them, it's the fact that uh, mm-hmm. that they're having to raise crops to feed their livestock as they used to was not any better than going going to town and becoming an uh, insurance agent for State Farm or something. Uh, and on the yeah. other hand, I've, I've known people that were, you know, really good at crops. And they said, man, I've had it with livestock. They're too much work. So they do some other combination of enterprises, I guess. Uh, so this is just another creative application of combining some enterprises. And, and you said something else that I'd never really thought of before. And that is that inevitably you have to get some operating money or expansion money and that you can be much more attractive when you've got a combination of enterprises and having an Airbnb or something like that mixed into the regenerative farming. I could see that, how that could make sense to companies like the one you're dealing with. Yeah, no, the, I mean, this all goes back to uh, the, the taking our cue from nature and trying to build symbiotic relationships in our own organ, in our own company, right? We, if we need something else, we want that something else to be making the other things stronger. You know, we, if, if I were to, let's say I need $60,000 a year to make up a difference of $60,000 a year, I could go get a job in town and sit at a desk and, and, and bring in that $60,000 a year, but it is, it is depleting my ability um, depleting my energy as farmer, I have to then farm nights and weekends. Um, it is it is just subtracting from the whole effort. Um, whereas if if we map out a route to sixty thousand dollars a year in an in a farm stay, that brings more visitors to the farm. That brings in the sixty thousand dollars we need. That also brings customers to the farm. It helps our meat sales. It helps our sheepskin sales. It helps our marketing because they go home and tell friends. Um, And um, it just makes the whole thing stronger. So we're trying to, and the same with education. I go out around the world and I'm very lucky to appear on podcasts like this. And I talk about what we're doing and and that helps this educational effort you know the fact that we're a savory hub and and all that so and 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 it's not by accident we think very carefully we we sit down with giant sheets of paper and pens and pencils and have meetings and think do we take this on it looks pretty good that could bring in you know x number of dollars per year but it would drain 
our energy. It would drain our ability to do these other things. And then quickly we kick our legs out from under us in five years. So we're, we're trying to build a, an enterprise for our children, for our grandchildren, for our great grandchildren. And it is that, that uh, generational story that keeps our focus on the long term. Um, you know, we're looking four generations back. My kids are looking five generations back, and now we're looking five generations forward. And we understand that if there's a leak in the boat, it's going to sink, no matter how big or small, over that time period. So we need to, everything we're doing here needs to get stronger and not deplete any other piece of the system over time. It needs to get stronger over time for it to succeed in the long term. You know, this is reminding me of, um, it's going to seem strange, Jesse, but it's reminding me of something I just noticed with goats lately. I've talked to a conversation with somebody that uh, had uh, lived on the fringes of a town and started uh, having some goats for the kids to take care of. And then before long, they're expanding it to other people. And now they're helping set up goats in, uh, I don't know, 25 states now. And mm-hmm. here in Sacramento, where, where I live, they were just on the news a couple of days ago, 400 goats that are grazing a public area, trying to clean it up. And then there's a, and then the leading farm to fork a restaurant in town just had a big feature where everybody came and they were enjoying goats and a goat meat and a special recipe. And it's so, these things come together. You have to kind of keep your eyes open for seeing changes taking place but i can't remember the last time i've ever went somewhere that you could have you know a goat feed for 300 people and in the middle of a city of a population of well over a million have 400 goats that are grazing public areas uh, you know i just bring that up that's not a straight extension of your story but it's just that if you look close you see things like this that are just progressing and changing just when you feel like it's not possible, it actually is possible. And Yeah. Well, you know, humans are very, we're not good at many things, but we're very good at surviving. You know, we are, we are pretty weak, pretty slow bags of blood running around in the wilderness. And we're very, what we have is very, we're clever, you know, and we can, we can survive. And I, and I think we're pretty lazy too. So we're not going to, figure it out until we need to, right? And I think that the pressure on the human species right now is acute and real and terrifying and pushing us to figure out how to survive this next challenge. And I have tremendous faith and hope that we can and will. And I I think examples like you just mentioned and countless others around the globe that come across my desk every day are giving me tremendous hope and uh, for us as a species that we're going to figure it out. We're going to figure out how like my sheep (laughs) to make the environments we occupy stronger and more able to sustain us and, and the creatures and beings that occupy them with us on a global scale. Obviously that's happened in places around the planet since, you know, the beginning of humans, but We've gotten it wrong a lot of places too, and and the industrial model has really, for economic efficiencies, um, pushed the wrong model. But 
But well, I and looking, yeah, and looking down the road, I mean, it's not to get too abstract because you've actually got a couple of of, of young kids uh, that uh, that I'm I'm sure a, a time or two it occurs to you what kind of a world are you helping them have when they grow up and have kids? Oh, it's in my head every day. Yeah, they're three. I mean, I'm sorry, they're five and eight now, and and I'm teaching them how to. Um, produce their own food, how to store their own food, how to care for the landscape, how to feed their community. Um, not entirely without the idea of collapse in my head, if it goes the other way, but um, trying to help them believe it doesn't have to be, it doesn't have to go that way. There's another way. And we just have to grab I think the mass consciousness, the mass, you know, the imagination of the masses to move us in that direction. I think humans, humans are um, doomed to live through everything we can think of. <laughs> I think that's, and so we better be thinking about the right things. I think that's key to our success. So I think podcasts like yours are so vital to fighting the problems of the day, just to let, you know, spark the imagination, get the information out there that we don't have to resign ourselves to the worst ideas out there that capture our attention and what the news organizations keep returning to because it, it collects eyeballs and ad sales. There are good stories out there. There are compelling reasons to believe and to hope that we're going to be okay. And we need to get those stories out there because once enough people believe it, they'll get to work doing it and, and we'll be fine. Jesse, it's been great to have this conversation with you. And I have a strong feeling that there's somebody listening to this podcast right now that are going to be inspired to do something ahead of the directions that you're talking about. And I've had a lot of these conversations, Jesse, but you've opened the door to a, a, a broader way of looking at where we stand right now. And I, I really appreciate it. And I want to give you one more opportunity to give those uh, website addresses again, because, because people that didn't pick up their pencil or put it down into their iPhone when we mentioned it earlier, I'd like them to have another chance Added. So for more information, again, where do you think people need to go? I would encourage people to check out us at studiohill.farm, to check out the Savory Institute at savory.global. And if you're a regenerative farmer or a small farm looking to go in that direction, check out steward at gosteward.com. And Stuart is spelled S-E-T-W-S-E-E-W-A-R-T? A-R-D. Stewards. Steward. 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 Okay, as is stewards of the land, as, as you are. As in stewardship, indeed. Ah, okay. Well, Jesse McDougall, it's been tremendous conversation today. I really appreciate Wish you best. We're going to have to do this again sometime to keep track of your progress and the inspiration you have for others. So thanks for being on Farm to Table Talk. Thank you, Roger. I've enjoyed it. You've been listening to Farm to Table Talk with your host, Roger Wasson. 